Ameda Ena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech Show, a podcast where we talk about what we work on, not about what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Nimi Ramanujum is developing technology to improve women's health and well-being. While in graduate school, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Her experience with this diagnosis led her to develop a portable cervical cancer screening device. Nimi explained how the device works and the process of designing it. We also talked about existing structural, emotional, and cultural barriers present in women's healthcare. Nimi is professor of biomedical engineering, global health, and pharmacology, and director for the Center for Global Women's Health Technology at Duke University. In 2019, she was the recipient of the Social Impact Abbey Award. Abbey Awards are presented by AnitaB.org, a global nonprofit with a goal of reaching 50-50 gender equity in tech by 2025. Abbey Awards honor and celebrate women who have led technical innovations and made a notable impact on business or society through technology. This episode is part of a series of shows that highlight the work of Abbey Award winners. For more information about the Abbey Awards, go to anitab.org. Nimi Ramanajum is joining us today. Nimi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about several things that you worked on, most of them related to women's health. But I did want to begin with something else first, and this is related to music. And as a kid, your mother taught you to play the, the vina. And this is a core instrument of South Indian origin. And you perform in the radio. You had never read music, but you could recreate pieces. Can you talk about this experience of how you approach music? Yeah, I watched my mother play in front of music aficionados and big concert halls. And I was so enamored by the fact that without any words, she was able to evoke emotions in so many people. And people understood, loved, appreciated what she did. And I just thought, I need to do this. And I started. And she was my teacher. And I have to say that When I learned music, I felt like I could creatively express things that I really cared about without having to articulate it in words. And um, it also gave me a sense of empowerment because, you know, music is so pervasive that if you are, you know, a musician and you share it, people come together no matter what culture or religion they subscribe to. It was that power of community, the power of emotion, and the power to express all in one. Yeah, that's great. And like you said, you are just fascinating from watching her do this. The power that music evokes. And yeah, the reaction from people. What about in terms of, you know, how you approached it by, like you were saying, you didn't really read music, but you could still make music so you know I just was a child that could hear music and understand it it just maybe was a gift that I had 
So I could recreate pieces by just listening to them. And so my mother took advantage of that and she just taught me pieces. In fact, I can remember the pieces now that I learned when I was five and I haven't played the instrument since I moved on to piano. And I have to say that I can still hear the music in my head. And I think it has served me really well because I remember things really well. And it really gives you an intuitive sense for that discipline. Exactly. I want to talk now about, you know, your work in women's health. I see that you specifically focus a lot on women's cancer, like cervical cancer and breast cancer. And when you started your career in graduate school, you were actually diagnosed with early stage cervical cancer. Can you talk about this time in your life? Mm -hmm. So I was in my early 20s and I actually had a, I would say, a series of medical misfortunes. Mm -hmm. So I actually was very naive. I didn't know or didn't appreciate, or maybe it was just the invincibility of being young. I was uh, diagnosed with carcinoma in situ, so very much a preventable type of cancer of the cervix. And before then, I was diagnosed with a breast lump, turned out to be a cyst. And then after my cervical uh, carcinoma in situ diagnosis, I was diagnosed with an ovarian cyst from taking the, I guess it was maybe just an ovarian cyst, maybe due to some issues with hormonal changes. Anyway, I, I felt like that year was a really a big turning point for me. And I should maybe take a step back and say, I did engineering because I thought I would like it. I liked solving problems and I liked creativity. And I thought somehow the two would come together and make hay. Turns out I hated engineering in college because I felt like... You know, if I was to use the music analogy, I was learning how to play the keys on the piano or the string instrument, but never really able to make any music. And for me, it was all about making the music, and I couldn't figure out how engineering could lead to something creative. But those medical misfortunes and the treatments that I had were, I think, in a way for me to connect something very personal to something that I could not relate to. And I would say that I was very fortunate. I had all the resources to be well. And the added benefit of using that experience to harness my creative energy and to bring back the euphoria that music did into my life as an engineer. Yes, definitely. So you're saying this turning point in your life is what led you to do research in this area. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And let's talk about some of the you know, examples of things you were seeing in terms of prevention services, because we're going to talk about your current work. But before that, I want to understand the most common things and the state of cancer prevention, specifically in women's health. So let me just clarify, because I think the state of cancer prevention is different everywhere. Okay. So when I was a student, I have to say that I was told what to do. I had health insurance. I had transportation. So I did what I was told, but I was not completely aware of the disease or the ramifications. Okay. Maybe you could attribute that to my youth. I don't know. But today, as I look at the disease and reflecting on my experiences of the past, 
what I see when it comes to, I'm not even going to use the word cancer. I'm actually going to talk about what I consider to be one of the biggest inequities of our time, which is sexual and reproductive health inequities. A lot of it is related to healthcare. And I see one barrier as structural. And you could argue that in wealthier nations, those structural barriers are not that great. I mean, not that insurmountable. But in low resource settings, you definitely have structural barriers. You have access issues, you have cost issues and logistical issues. But what we don't talk about, and I think that I should keep emphasizing every time I have a chance to get on the podium, is the invisible barrier. And I don't think that's actually unique to low resource settings. It's universal. And this idea that when it comes to a part of your body that's very private and very intimate, that when you need care, you are most vulnerable. You're exposing yourself to intimidating procedures. And that fear, the lack of awareness and the shame can largely be a deterrent to care. So I would say wherever you are, the common denominator, and in fact, in my talk just this morning, I could hear those things echoed, which is that women, when they're afraid or they feel disempowered, they may not seek care. Mm -hmm. And there are many cultures in which women are not inculcated into the world of modern healthcare, particularly when it comes to gynecology. That to me is like a spectator sport, where the woman is at the table and everyone else is peering in. So I would say invisible barriers can be a major deterrent to positive health-seeking behavior. Are there additional variables in terms of, you know, we have these mechanisms of preventing cancer and detecting it and following up on that. Are there barriers in terms of the cost of these procedures? So I think when you think about barriers, you have to look at the cost and you also have to look at the distance and you have to look at the emotional. So cost, yes, because as you know, this is a very publicly debated issue and the people who are most affected are the people that have the problems. Let's just take a very simple situation. You want to get screened and you go get screened and then you're told you have to follow up at a hospital. We heard the story on NPR just recently. You go to a hospital, you get the care, and then maybe you have insurance and you have a deductible or you don't have insurance. And um, hospitals actually are making you pay for their rent or their infrastructure fees. So this recent NPR interview talked about how a woman went in for something that would cost very little to do, but because she went to a hospital, she ended up paying the 50% overhead, I guess, that you pay when you get a Tylenol from a hospital or any basic kind of care. And so cost is a big issue, and it's another invisible barrier in some ways because you don't know what the costs are if you have health insurance, but when you don't, everything limits what you can and cannot do. So thank you for bringing that up because I often think of other things, but I have not come to realize that where you get care becomes very important. And so cost is an issue, whether it's transportation cost or the cost of overhead that you pay when you get care at a high-end facility. I want to talk now more specifically about you know, some of the things you've been researching and 
building, particularly in the cervical cancer space. And just to give some context to people, I looked up some stats, you know, worldwide, more than uh, 500,000 cases occur annually. And then just in the United States, more than 10,000 cases are diagnosed each year. So that gives a, an idea on the magnitude. And I looked up, you know, some approaches that are that are used in the current standard practices, which are the speculum and the colposcope, and, you know, trained professionals are involved. Can you explain, you know, in general what colposcopy is? Mm-hmm. So in a Western healthcare setting, the first test is a pap smear where cells are scraped from the cervix in a primary care visit. If the cells are positive, a woman comes back for a second visit where a low-power microscope called a colposcope is used in conjunction with a speculum to essentially part open the vaginal walls so that the provider can see the cervix where the abnormal cells may reside. Then they take a sample, and if it's positive, the woman comes back for a third visit to get treated, hopefully to prevent the cancer. Now, this system has worked very well in the U.S. because people are primed and they have access to these services. Now, is it perfect? No, but people recognize that in order to avoid the disease, they have to do these steps. That is the nature of the procedure. It's multi-step, it's centralized, and care is received in a way that is provider-centric. Yes, definitely. And this, again, goes back to, you know, things we think about when we're looking at barriers like cost and emotional in this case is a lot related to the cost. So one of the the things you worked on is this colposcope called pocket colposcope. Can you explain in in what ways it's, you know, reducing cost and eliminating some of the barriers that we Mm -hmm. talked about? So I took a trip to East Africa a few years ago, maybe six years or seven years ago. And I remember, you know, that I had read all of the statistics related to cervical cancer prevention. And all you, mostly what you hear about is are structural in nature, as I look at cost or access. But, you know, when you talk to women on the ground, you hear something very different. Yes, they're concerned with cost. Yes, they're concerned with access. But their biggest fear is the procedure. Because you are really not, you know, inculcated into that world and all of a sudden you go because you might have cervical cancer and it's like you're vulnerable when you're already vulnerable. It's like a double whammy. So I came back and I thought to myself, how can we get rid of both the structural and the emotional barriers or the cultural barriers simultaneously? And I remember thinking to myself that one of the things that is so important to do as a technical person, is to really appreciate the humanities. So I went back to the history books. I read about the history of gynecology. You know, every invention has a reason for its place in society. And if we just simply ask the question, why is this invention here? Why did it get developed this way? We may either embrace it more or we may discard it entirely. And so when I found out about the fact that the original form of the speculum was found in Pompeii and that a more recent version was developed in the antebellum south by a slave owner who experimented on enslaved women in his property, I thought to myself, well, this was certainly not designed with women in mind. 
And certainly, it was not designed to embrace women's bodies. In fact, one of the things he said was, I'm disgusted when I look at a woman's body. So it's no surprise that the speculum gave him this nice view of what he needed to do without having to deal with the woman herself. So there have been these instances where technology persists over time, and that becomes the new normal. And I thought to myself, wow. So the colposcope that is being used today was designed around the speculum. It's expensive because you're trying to look at an object from a distance and you're trying to get a really good picture. Mm -hmm. What if you just completely started over again, got rid of the speculum and embraced today's advances in technology? What would you think of, right? The beginner's mindset. And so lo and behold, we thought, let's like, for look for inspiration in women's products. So we started with actually a little bit of technology and a little bit of feminine hygiene. One inspiration was a spy pen. We thought, what if you could develop a spy pen that has a camera and a light source and a USB charging port, and you could connect that to a cell phone, and a woman could insert it herself and look at a picture of her cervix. And then we were also inspired by the tampon. Well, somehow that inserter of the tampon allows the tampon to be inserted and put in the right place. So we need some sort of shell that allows the camera to see this enclosed, hidden part of the body and nudge it into place, which is not trivial. Yeah. So that's how the journey started. So the pocket colposcope was the first version. It still was to be used with the speculum, but what it did is it brought the entire colposcope right up against the cervix. So by going from a foot to an inch away, you were able to drive down the costs by two orders of magnitude. Then we saw this other sort of fortuitous outcome, which is if you already have a spy pen-like device, how can you make that so that you could use it in a completely speculum-free setting? It turns out that what the speculum does really well and that has no one has been able to replace, it has these two blades. You put them in and then you basically push them apart to kind of give you a nice field of view. We thought, why use moving parts? Instead, we were inspired by the kala lily. The kala lily is a very interesting flower. It's asymmetrical. And the cervix is often tilted away. So you think of a long canal, and the cervix is at the bottom, and you think it's looking straight up. But in fact, it can be up, down, sideways. And so the speculum actually has blades that not only open up, but nudge the cervix into place. We use the kala lily to do the exact same thing. We had an asymmetrical tip so that when it hits this donut-like object, the asymmetry actually pushes the donut right into the kala lily. And then the camera is in the stem of this kala lily, mm. which takes these beautiful pictures. But it's a low-end camera because you don't need a high-end camera with a lot of megapixels when you're close up to the cervix. And then, because you have digital images, you can use artificial intelligence. So it was the pocket colposcope in the body of a kala lily, which is why we call the second version the kaloscope, and then coupled with artificial intelligence algorithms, in principle, obviates the need for the doctor, the exam, and the speculum. What that means is you could literally bring this to a woman's home, and given that for every 100 women you screen, only two have likely have cancer. That would mean 98 out of 100 women would not have to expose their bodies in a health facility. So I can clearly see how that is, you know, getting rid of the 
some of the emotional barriers, the cultural barriers, because they're doing it themselves in a private setting, not to mention, you know, the cost, too. They won't have to pay, and then turns out they're one of the 98 that don't have cancer. That's great. <laughs> That's fantastic. I just wanted to ask something real quick in terms of, you know, artificial intelligence, and you're mentioning how now this can be used. In what ways is it being used? Is this to be able to detect something or for the screening or... Yeah, so there are a number of groups developing that, including ours. And so what we have done is we've taken the texture and the color of the images, and you can get different colors by the stains that are routinely used. And what we do is we take those features and put it into a machine learning algorithm. And of course, you have to have enough images to train on and then compare to the gold standard. And once you do that, you know, you may not be perfect because you have something called biology, which is very hard to make 100% right every time. But what you need to do is rival the expert. If you can rival the expert, you already hit the major milestone. Number two, there's no real downside to over-treating. There is a downside to under-treating, right? But if you know that, yeah, you are going to over-treat a few women, but you're also going to make sure you're not missing anyone, it's actually... Um, something that will prevent women from advancing as long as you don't have this ideal notion that you have to get it 100% right because you don't want to make the perfect the enemy of the good. So what we're striving for is to be as good as the expert. That would be what you would say your baseline. And then you can only get better because the more data you collect, the better you can be. And so it's an opportunity also to do hybrid medicine. Let's say that there's a particular health system that does not completely subscribe to AI. You could actually have the artificial intelligence algorithm as one of the readers. Mm -hmm. So you can almost think of it as you have your expert reader who's a person, but you can also have an expert reader that's an algorithm and you can compare notes and actually sort of reconcile any disparities in the reading and be able to give a more robust you know, recommendation. So there are many ways to use AI in that context. Yes, definitely. And I do see, you know, in this solution, a big component is, you know, portability and things are, you know, digital and images. In general, what are some, you know, important thoughts in terms of, you know, privacy and security, particularly in the health space? Yeah, that's a very important question. And so whether the woman is doing it at home or doing it in a health facility, you have to worry about, you know, de-identifying data and making sure that the data is secure. And so we, those are things though that are well-established and well-documented. So I think that it's not something we have to invent. We can actually take advantage of the fact that there are now, you know, electronic medical record systems that do that. And so we are working with the tools we already have available to us to make sure that everything is secure and processed and communicated in a responsible and professional way. But it's definitely important to think about that and have those conversations. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Before we finish, since we're here at Grace Hopper and you're a winner of the Social Impact Abbey Award, congratulations on that. What does receiving this award mean to you? Well, it means many things, actually. You know, I really 
never thought of my work as having social impact because I've been labeled as an engineer and a professor. And so sometimes it's hard for you to imagine that you can do more than what you have been labeled as. And so the fact that I was nominated for and got this award tells me that you can do anything as long as that's what you love doing. And to be recognized for it gives me, in a way, the license to say, gosh, I can be a professor, I can be an educator, I can be an entrepreneur, but I can also have social impact. I don't have to make choices. I mean, I'm limited ultimately by how much time I have in the day, but I also tell my students and people who ask me for advice, my personal view is just like what you're doing. You are not just defined by your day job. You can choose to do other things that make you fulfilled. And I think we live in a world now where it's so important to reinvent ourselves and to imagine possibilities that perhaps you know, are not in our you know, consciousness right now. And I feel that what this award symbolizes for me, it's so important to catalyze change, but you don't have to be a certain type of person to do that. And in fact, you can reinvent yourself over and over again to essentially be of service to society. Mm -hmm. And I think also the Social Impact Award means one more thing to me that it's not just about serving the beneficiaries on the ground, it's also about catalyzing change makers who can continue that legacy because changes are hard to make and people's minds are hard to change. But if you can educate and create a shift in mindsets in the next generation of innovators and change makers, they can then pay it forward. And so I think it's part social impact in terms of health, but it's also social impact in terms of creating a movement that allows anyone, whether you're a technologist or not, to envision a world where you can use technology to create change. Mm -hmm, exactly. And people can nominate themselves for this award, but in your case, somebody else nominated you, right? Were you aware of this? Yes. And is that some someone that you worked with? Yeah, it was my uh, former mentor in graduate school and someone I tried to emulate a lot because of her real commitment to being of service to humanity. They noticed the impact you were doing. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just asking this, just, you know, if somebody's listening and, you know, they have a colleague and they should think about nominating people for they've different categories. Yeah, and I would say don't be embarrassed to ask someone to nominate you okay. because people are so busy. I will not be embarrassed to say that I constantly ask people to nominate me. Usually I would say, well, I should be nominated because if I'm not recognized by someone, as someone who should be nominated, then maybe I shouldn't be. It turns out it's not like that. People just don't have time. And also if you want to make a difference, if you want to be an activist, if you want to make social change, you kind of almost have to start with yourself and say, how do I get a platform to be able to speak to my cause? Exactly. And the way you do that is by self-promotion yeah, because speaking up well I mean people say it's kind of embarrassing especially in I would say you know women yeah. tend to sort of think that it's too much attention on themselves it's bragging exactly. but I actually think that if you want to serve others you kind of have to get out there exactly. and awards allow you to get on the podium yeah and say what you think I think it's win-win it gives people an idea of your cause and you know you can have potential new 
people working with you, but also is, again, uh, you know, seeing more women being recognized and getting an idea of the kind of work they're doing? Yeah, I would say, in closing, I would say, how do you create a multiplier effect? Because let's say you develop a product. Maybe it'll be like the iPod or the iPhone where it can have a revolutionary impact. But most products are not like that. Usually the products become obsolete and life goes on. But if you create people, they become your products. Yeah. You have a multiplier effect because what they imagine is well beyond your imagination. So. For sure. All right. Well, Nimi, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a real treat talking to you. Thank you so much.